0: Welcome to Joey's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Chris Falardi. He's a senior scientist at Conservation International, and we're going to talk about Indigenous people's stewardship of vital ecosystems. I interviewed him last year in November, but it was over a kind of sketchy Wi-Fi at Dubai Airport. So I decided to try to talk to him again. We have a lot of new material, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Christopher, how are you?
1: I'm, I'm doing great. It's good to, be, good to
0: be on here with you. So uh, explain to me again what Conservation International does.
1: So it just turned 30 uh, in January of this year. And, and 30 years ago, Conservation International really started as a response to the need for conservation organizations, um, the big ones, to start operating in ways that reflected the sort of needs and opportunities of international con- con- context more, more than it had in the past. And in particular, in response to the sort of, you know, first apogee of the biodiversity crisis really coming into the mainstream in the late 1980s, just before the, you know, the first convention on biological diversity in Rio, uh, you, you know, in the, in the early 90s. People were realizing that we were losing these kind of critical threads in the in the fabric of living diversity on on Earth that were, you know, damaging to to us kind of practically and functionally, but also sort of spiritually. You know, the idea that we were we were kind of um, leaving an Earth less rich and thriving than the one we entered was was increasingly unacceptable to a lot of people and conservation at international was sort of born out of this idea that, you know, much of the most threatened biological diversity on the planet is outside the context of Europe and North America. And we need to respond to that. And we do to respond to it in new ways and in ways that are guided by the, the context on the grounds in, in places like Amazonia and Africa across the tropical Pacific. Um,
0: and so, so that's, and, and it's, it's a, it's a, how long has CI been around? It's, it's a pretty. 30 years. For 30 years. So, yeah. so, so uh, you know, I want to sort of move into kind of, you know, where you're the most excited now, because that was, I mean, there's a sort of, cause biodiversity, I think you guys have been focusing on it in trying to make interventions through policy, understanding it through science. And at the event where we met for the first time in Marrakech, I mean, I think the big uh, new idea was the role of indigenous people um, in this, and I think you would agree that historically, although we realized that indigenous people were there, they weren't near they weren't usually the center of the conservation efforts, right? and is there there's a Is there a move right now to involve or engage in indigenous people, and what's the thinking behind that?
1: Well, interestingly, when I first entered the conservation realm, which is right around when Conservation International was being formed um, a little a little bit before that actually, uh, it, there was very deep animosity between hmm. indigenous and other place-based communities, local communities, and many conservation efforts because people were actively being removed huh. from homelands of many Hundreds, if not thousands, of generations, and th- th- these were these were massive, massive ethical breaches. And 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 we're, we're now coming into an era where conservation is certainly starting to accept that um, is actually diversifying into spaces, recognizing that you know we're not managing biodiversity; we're managing our own relationship with it. Mm-hmm. And um, and along with that is this recognition of the need for ethical engagement with other human beings around the world um, and a recognition of, the, of, of some of the really misguided aspects of our of our history in conservation in terms of, of how we, we interacted with, as a movement, how it interacted with mm-hmm. Indigenous people, in local community around, around the world, really often seeing people as an impediment, mm-hmm. whereas really people are the only engine for any sorts of change uh, in, in the kinds of things we're, it- we're Address. And that,
0: that's kind of like when I talk to people from the sort of global South, that's one of the biggest sh- shocks I get often when I hear about sort of the image, at least, of public health, of a lot of these efforts that we have. They were sort of seem to have roots in kind of a colonial approach to yeah. making the environment, making the situation more friendly to colonialism. and. Whether it's the local fauna or the local people, um, they were sort of, you know, it was figuring out how to wrangle them, and it feels like a lot of the uh, the mindset uh, behind the somewhat paternalistic view on the rest of the world uh, had continued um, even in conservation efforts and that this seems to be a really wonderful sort of coming together of, you know, what for the, what was generally, genuinely a good effort, but had these colonial overtones with this idea of human justice and human rights that was sort of a separate, you know, whether you're talking about a foundation portfolio or whether you talk about the sort of the different people involved had been two separate things and it felt like in Marrakesh, these were coming together. I mean, and, and you've lived in both of these worlds too, right?
1: Yeah, no, I, ha- I mean, I've, I've been privileged to be sort of educated as a human being within a number of different ig- indigenous communities. And, you know, for me, even the idea of thinking about biodiversity and people or nature and people really doesn't make any sense. And, and so when I think about some of the great efforts in our country, in the United States here, You know, the Endangered Species Act is this incredible organic act, the Wilderness Act are these incredible um, mechanisms that I think are world facing and wonderful in the context of a a nation state. Um, But they are born out of a very broken relationship between human beings and the natural systems, not that we live off of or steward, but the natural systems that we are and are us. And there are outside of nation states, There are these systems of governance where the identity of the people within them, their history, their future is utterly and wholly entangled in place. And what I'm most excited about is I've had the privilege of almost 30 years of working in spaces where the governance systems were more beholden to place than they were to an electorate or to any, you know, subgenerational political cycles. Um, and, and, and I've seen some of the greatest, if not well, the greatest conservation successes I've seen have been born out of those kinds of governance systems. And the opportunity now is we're at right a moment, as you saw in Marrakesh, where the world is starting to not only listen, but starting to hear that this is a way. This is another way. To think about governance, the world, and stewardship of these incredibly valuable things, both practically for Earth systems in terms of climate, but also spiritually in terms of our relationship with one another, the Earth. I mean, 4% of the Earth's population is indigenous. Well over 90%, if not 95, 98% of our linguistic and cultural diversity is within that 4%. And that 4% is spread across. of the land area of the world and stewarding some of the last remaining thriving kind of contiguous natural systems that we have left. And a human species without those connections, to me, is, is so deeply diminished. I don't even want to think about that, right? And we need to think about ourselves like that. In the end, we're all indigenous to earth and that we need that kind of interplay between The indigenous people that are defined by the United Nations, or you know, by difference today, and and let that infuse all of our decision making, all of our thinking, and even how we organize ourselves in nation states. Mm -hmm. We should kind of we need to remove that animosity. I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Kevin Barron's asking in the comments that a recent study indicates that indigenous communities in the Amazon are largely responsible for the biodiversity. Is that? Do you have any? Thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, there 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 are a number of studies that show that in some areas, if tenure security is intact, if agency is 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 there and available to communities, not only do they do they steward whatever whatever conservation value you want to put on it, biodiversity, carbon, whatever, they are some of the best examples Mm -hmm. of long-term durable and sustained stewardship of things that conservation and even nation states value really heavily. And Amazonia is a good example of that. Now, in some parts of Latin America, there are indigenous groups that have been so oppressed that when they do get rights, they're actually selling them just to to make ends meet. And and those have caused some problems. So I think we need to look at that with, you know, in a clear headed way, and, and also not not kind of perpetuate these sort of um, you know stereotypes of you know that mm. this you know indigenous people have you know are are kind of naked in the forest and and are perfectly in harmony with everything, it, it's they're they're people, right? Just like any of us. It's just that in those in those places where a group of human beings share a history with place whose identity is literally defined by that place, and whose futures are all, seen as a part of, with that identity enmeshed in, 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 in that place, those are our greatest opportunities for really durable visionary stewardship of, of natural resources, biodiversity, whatever. There's no other place that does it as well. Um, and it's not to say it always happens because there ha- there's this history of colonialism, oppression, and that some groups have a different vision. But when those visions align, there's no better place on earth for us to achieve huge, almost almost what seemed to be impossible, right? Bars in terms of conservation success. Mm-hmm. Th- those are really the only places we can really achieve those um, to, to, to the, to, to a degree that I think is possible right now.
0: And and you, you mentioned earlier some, something, some work that you've done. I mean, can you give us an example of what it looks like to do an intervention or do work
1: Really I, I my yeah, it's funny, it's not even work that I've done. I I've been again, as I said, privileged to kind of I I went up to British Columbia almost I guess twenty five years ago. Um, this is the coast coast of British Columbia and I'm almost reluctant to call it British Columbia because the place I was really did what wasn't British Columbia. It didn't even feel like Canada. It was a you know a, now we know a 14 to 15 thousand year old community rooted in that place that taught me how to be a part of something that started thousands of generations ago. Mm -hmm. And the idea was the rules you play by aren't what can you take, but what, what can you leave behind? When you think about salmon and salmon fishing and commercial salmon fishing, you don't always only think about that species and how much you can take and maintain a supply for next year to make money. But it's also how many salmon do bears need? Mm -hmm. How many salmon do wolves need? Mm -hmm. How many salmon do we need to move up into the forest so the berry bushes regenerate? That's literally, and it sounds almost uh, like a platitude. It doesn't sound, but it is transformational. And in British Columbia, I was able to come up there as a young scientist and I was taught how to do science that answered questions that had been asked and were being asked for many generations by people who were entangled in place Mm -hmm. as opposed to coming. It's a little bit like taking science and putting it in, you know, having it ride shotgun instead of being in the driver's seat or, or maybe Mm -hmm. every once in a while, it's just a, you know, a bunch of gear you have in the trunk or, or maybe it's even strapped onto the roof. You know, science does it. it, It's, it's, powerful and critical for it to be engaged and involved but somehow as part of those kind of colonial attitudes we always think that science needs to make the decisions science needs to lead Mm -hmm. and i mean as you know and we've talked about this before science is a beautiful way one beautiful way for showing us how the world is how it operates Mm -hmm. it doesn't tell us how the world ought to be yep and what i learned in those communities in british columbia is they have a vision of how the world ought to be, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, re, it it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. It's about an ethic and an ethos, and science plays a very deep role there, but it's not in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And success, now it's called the Great Bear Rainforest. That's the, That's not what First Nations people up there call it, mm-hmm. but it's a success in that right now those forests are largely managed by... First Nations resource management departments that are mm-hmm. gaining their funding through a carbon credit scheme and through partnerships and long-term financing from outside actors. Mm-hmm. And it's really a model of what we could do in a coordinated way globally in much shorter, that took 25 years. Mm-hmm. If we coordinate and are proactive and commit and trust that kind of leadership, we can do this on time scales that are more around a decade mm-hmm. as opposed to two and a half, three decades mm-hmm. and really achieve something where 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 the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts by by coordinating and Mm -hmm. amplifying Mm -hmm. and uh, and trusting that those voices coordinated and amplified can actually show us Mm -hmm. a new way so
0: so i have something that maybe you can tell me if it's this is just me being stereotyping and 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 thinking (laughs) about myths but um and I, I, i i i can't remember where i heard this i may have heard it from you but um you know the the idea of sort of growth and uh progress which is part of the idea that drives science as being a sort of fundamental good or a fundamental thing and the story that i heard was when europeans first landed in australia and met the indigenous people the aborigines the aborigines their culture was really about how do you flourish in nature, but not really change it. And they weren't, they don't think a lot about the future and planning or the past so much. And it was really kind of flourishing in the moment and they had a, an ethos that wasn't about progress or or gain. And that according to this story that I heard, and again, I'd love to get you to help me figure out how to validate it, but was that also, uh, and so so they they treated them as animals because how could humans um, how could there be humans um, who who didn't want progress and so, so a lot of the the injustice of treat, sh- sh- being allowed to shoot them with impunity and until recently, I think they were in the textbook as fauna was because their fundamental sensibility was so different from that of the west and the idea again that i that I heard around this was the the, the that a lot of the indigenous people. Are flourishing in nature with nature, and I think a lot of the West, whether we're talking about science or whether we're talking about capitalism or the economy, is really about how do you, uh, uh, you know, uh, gain from taking control of nature or or managing nature or churning nature into something that becomes engine fuel for for whatever it is that we call civilization, and that's sort of separate and at and sort of we're trying to beat nature rather than trying to flourish in nature and that that sort of sensibility um you know which you may have meant called it ethics but it's i think there's sort of a, a a higher level thing which is like what makes you happy you know being one sort of being in control versus two you know feeling part of something and flourishing in something and are, is that does that make sense
1: well i think it, it, it's What's interesting in, in just any, any kind of discussion about these sorts of things is this, this sense of, of that nature even exists. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that we can say that word nature, and if you really ask anybody who can say that word, there's no word like that in the vast majority of the world's languages. There's no word for nature. Um, you know, for, for the concept we have that is some, it's somehow out there and doesn't have us in it, Makes absolutely no sense for mm-hmm. for most of the linguistic and cultural diversity on the planet, and you know that to me is the root of of our issue. In mm-hmm. that that idea of dominion or control, I mean, is sort of a it's manufactured, right? Mm-hmm. It's manufactured, and it, and it's enabled a certain kind of progress, a very profound progress that I think has benefited. People in many, many ways, and has benefited and and, and it's something that I think indigenous communities want to and love. I mean, an iPhone is an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and that an iPhone was not born out of, you know, deep communion um, and obliteration of boundaries between nature, people. It was it was born out of a a kind of a reductionist approach to the planet and, and life. And there's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so long as we don't see that as requisite to progress or we don't see that as the the only way to define civilization i'll never forget in the, in the heart of new guinea i met this old guy and and he was sitting on the mud floor of this house chewing this beautiful bark that gives you kind of a a high, like, uh, like cocaine. It's this, Mm -hmm. these two kinds of bark and these old men would chew it and they walk, it's like a walking bark. It really helps you if you have to go on a long walk. And he's in the middle of a walk and he sat there and he turned out, he was this old scholar who during colonial times had written about. And one of the things he said was we are not, we didn't encounter civilization when planes came out of the sky and landed in our villages in the, in the 1930s, these are people who were, who had never seen a car and a plane comes out of the sky. And, uh, we didn't encounter, so we were, we, we, we are, we had civilizations here. They were just different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and his ethos was, how do we meld these? You know, how do we meld them? How do we not have one devour another? Mm -hmm. And, um, and maybe that that's what it's about is how do we, you know, it's about this, this kind of idea that it's not a this or that it's not Mm -hmm. us and nature. We are nature, nature is us. Mm -hmm. And and when we think about technology again, that thinking about all of us being indigenous to the planet and, and cherishing the communities that really are living that in their everyday where all of their political and ecological lives are compressed into the world that they're touching right around them. Like those folks in Australia, Mm -hmm. Um, that has as much to do with progress and success as you know the newest um, you know technology in, in cellular communications or satellites or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's that and most indigenous communities and leaders are, are way more capable than at least a lot of people I see and a lot of our leaders in our society are of thinking of, of, of kind of creating those syncretic attachments among these different kinds of histories around the world. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. There's an incredible resilience and adaptive capacity in a lot of those communities. And I think that scares the crap out of us Mm -hmm. because the folks who are going to struggle if things collapse are us, Mm -hmm, you know, my mm -hmm. family in New York city, if infrastructure goes away, it is going to be a mess over there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So so, it's that melding that I think is very hopeful yeah. And what I see as, as huge possibility is there are these place-based communities around the world who are thinking in, in humble, genius kinds of ways about that melding and are living it
0: mm-hmm,
1: and mm-hmm. we need to catch up.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it seems like when, you know, the, the, the example you gave from British Columbia and also just when I listen to some of these great um, indigenous leaders, even in Marrakesh talking, they think in systems, right? They, they're thinking about what's the input of what and what's the output of that. And, and it's, it, it seems um, that, uh, and, 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 you know, and I think, again, I think it depends a little bit on whether they're uh, agricultural community or hunter gatherers, but, but, you know, I, I, I think that uh, um, the idea that you're living in a system and that everything is connected to everything else and you, you you understand it intuitively because you're living it every day, um, whereas you know our lives day to day. Whether we're scientists in a lab, or you're a, you're an accountant, or you're um, you know anybody else, you sort of only see the sliver of what your life is. And for many of these people, they don't get to see or even intuitively understand this entire system. And it feels like. That's one of the problems that we have with science right now is it's it's super specialized and you're looking at one microscope setting, one community, and that the somehow it all kind of folds together into a system but but that sensibility of designing for complex adaptive systems that you don't really have control of that that feels like a sensibility that we can import into into science. Um, <laughs> And do you, do you have any ideas on how you do it? Because like you're, you're sort of exhibit A, right? You're somebody who's spent time, has been inspired, and now you're trying to launch projects where you're trying to apply some of this stuff. I mean, what's the. Do you, do you have any ideas on how, how you get scientists and, 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 uh, and policymakers and others to, to sort of think in these ways?
1: Well, I mean, I can almost. Ask you the same thing because, in some ways, you've you've started to inspire me as well with some of the conversations we've had about creating the kinds of communities that can inspire social movements. These kind of cross-cutting communities, and one one of the things I really I really worry about is that you know is this myth of the individual that we we all live with particularly in, in Europe and the United, and particularly in the United States. And we've exported that, that, that kind of mythology that there, are, there is an individual, when in reality, the incredible hubris that it takes for someone like me to go out and study evolutionary biology, it, it is incredible. I'm like, the fact that I could think we could figure this out, and, and I didn't even believe it when I started 30 some odd years ago. And it is powerful that hubris is there but it needs to be married to the humility and kindness of people who really are immersed in systems thinking it is mm-hmm. deeply humbling and if there's anything we know about human evolution it's that we evolved in groups the diversity within us that you know that type a type b type c d z we that is not an accident that is not an, an invention it is a legacy of an evolutionary history where for millions of years, we evolved in groups. That was what made us different, is that we were so, not only did we evolve in groups, those group dynamics got passed on from generation to generation to generation. And I think we need to reinvent that. So if there's one thing I've seen, it's how do we recognize and uphold and amplify the vision and actually capacity of these place-based governance systems, these Mm. systems-level thinkers, how do we enable those to act on par with the kind of nation-state governance systems that have inspired the National Science Foundation, the Mm. kinds of work that you've done, and even myself to a small degree in science. It's how do we meld those things together? And I think one place to start is in a world-facing collaborative, a partnership where we truly recognize and support those governance systems in places where they're taking care of stuff that helps us all, whether it's carbon or biodiversity, and we, we support that in ways that are commensurate with its mm. impact globally. And, and once we start doing that, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll start learning how to meld and how to bring these things back together. Mm.
0: And, and I guess my other concern is um, even if we know that something is good and something needs to be done. I think we're kind of in a society right now that we can't always do it. You know, I mean, we have, I won't go into specifics, but you know, we, we have a bunch of stuff going on in the world that to the majority of people is clear it's a bad idea and it happens anyway. And so I think, you know, the other part that I'm really interested in is um, there's definitely the, like getting the science better, but um, there's, Also, I think a a really important cultural thing, and this is kind of gets back to my earlier question about sort of values and, and sensibilities, because I think that, you know, a lot of change has to happen bottom up. And I think we've, even with politics, we've seen that top down politics doesn't work so well these days. And so I think one of the other interesting things is going to be in addition to merging, and thinking about, the science uh, together and to think about the philanthropy and the uh, nonprofits, which is, I think, a great move. Um, mm-hmm. I think we need to figure out how we change the culture of society. And I think those interventions aren't going to be a bunch of rules or a bunch of numbers or a bunch of programs or even technology. Well, technology to a certain extent can play a role. I mean, the iPhone obviously has an effect on how people behave. But I think that the way that we change how people befa- behave is going to be stuff like music, stuff yeah. like fashion stuff like, uh, you know, stories. And th- that's also, I think, you know, I mean, the one good news is that when the world gets kind of crappy art gets kind of better. And so I think, you know, one of the important things also, like New York in uh, 1970s, exactly. Or, or, or punk rock, you know? And so, so I feel like the other group we need to be integrating with is, um, the, you know, the musicians, the artists, and also looking at whether, some of these indigenous uh, communities have, uh, uh, s- some of these values, uh, well are well expressed, um, in, in, in things like, um, not just crafts, but, but including crafts, but, um, other things that we might be able to, to, um, bring into our, our, um, our, uh, our what cultural systems, let's say, I, I don't know, have you, I don't know if you've poked around in that space at all.
1: No, I mean, without question, I mean, I, I just think about, how how art and, and music has played a role, in ju- even just in British Columbia, or, or but even across the Pacific Islands, how these these really hip, switched on um, musical acts mm-hmm. are moving around, following the old voyaging paths, and mm-hmm. kind of recreating this new this new wave of storytelling and wayfinding that involves exploration of our souls the collective heart of that ocean basin and how it relates to to climate and 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 all the nations who kind of scrounged around to find refuge or or kind of rascally whatever kind of pirating activity across the pacific i mean that's all reflected in mm-hmm. this wave of new fuse, fusion music that's just super powerful and is and is to be honest is not um, unrelated to the elevation of Pacific island voices in mm-hmm. climate dialogues at a, a nation state level. Hmm. So I think I think I think you're spot on and we and we need, we need to build room for that to happen. you know and, and and the way to do that is just to is just to crash into this stuff, is to really <laughs> live it and do it and just and don't plan it. Just mm-hmm, do it mm-hmm, make mm-hmm. mistakes, own your mistakes. Um, you know, the times I've done the stupidest things are when I plan the most, you know, and the times when I've done the, 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 the best things are when it's some combination of planning and, and, and really responding. And when you had the, that miraculous moment where you weren't so stupid that you didn't change it, you know, that you, that you didn't change your plan.
0: Although I still remember the first time we met in Marrakesh, it was pretty amazing, pretty cool, but some of it was kind of silly as well. <laughs>
1: Well, so there's nothing wrong with being silly. Um,
0: but that that was amazing. I, I you know, the, the the all of those uh, uh, people coming together, playing music together, dancing together, and then um, and, uh, and 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 having having a great time. I mean, I, th- I I I think that that's also really important. Which is, you know, at, at the Media Lab, we talk about creative learning being projects, peers, passion, and play. And that play is pretty essential in coming up with creative ideas. And I, I and I also feel like you know whether you're talking about disciplines or even um, some of these climate negotiations, they get so serious, and it's it is a serious thing. But also, you know, culture is is a, a lot of it is about having fun, and a lot of it is about en- emotional engagement. And I and I feel that that's one of the problems that we've had is uh, you know and 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 you know and. and I think it's it's not a secret that protests can be fun you know and 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 I th- I think that there's this really interesting um uh, activism that we're seeing these days um again not just because of climate but it in, in involving climate as well and if somehow we can build into that uh, I, and, and 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 sorry I'm rambling for a second but I I, I remember yeah. you were saying one interesting thing about um standing rock um and I I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the role of sort of indigenous people in, um, in, in protests and in, in some of these, um, in, in activism? Because I, 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 I know you were saying that, you know, that Standing Rock was, was amazing, but it was sort of really the, the tip of the iceberg in the, the kind of um, ac- activism that's going on in, um, in the Native American community right now.
1: Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what's happening. And, and there is not only fun, but it's food. It's, 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 there's this sharing of, of music and, and there are relationships that are born out of those spaces that, that are, that go way beyond and and people even occupy those spaces to see people for other reasons. Mm -hmm. It becomes almost a gathering point. I mean, there are a lot of protests going on right now around the movement of oil and gas. Uh, along the coast of British Columbia. Um, both pipelines, there was a recent um, spill um, and it's in a route where there's supposed to be huge super tankers coming in and out. And it's created this amazing upwelling of, of not just activism, but real political leadership. But all underneath that, inside of that are all these other incredible social gatherings that relate to herring or you know, someone needing a You know, a nice new carving for their living room, or you know, folks moving around all this yellow cedar that got confiscated from one place and bringing it over so that this guy can build a little shack for his friends when they come through, so they can kind of drink along the edge of the beach, and all that—that stuff is all part of it. So I Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more that it has to be fun. I mean, what the only way. I think you can truly have a rich life and and, and, and and stay in the game long enough to really get stuff done is if you have some, it's like a PhD, right? Uh, on a much bigger scale. If you don't have some ember in you that mm. never goes out, a PhD is just pedantic labor. Mm-hmm. If you have that ember in you, it's, it's not, right? That's what gets you through. It gets you through that. And you're almost winnowed to ensure that you have that ember there that you can fan up and really glow up all the time. And, mm-hmm. and for me, it's always been things like gathering food with people um, and mm-hmm. attaching that to my just love for seeing some new kind of bird or, or, you know, actually watching a salamander salamander crawl down some mossy bank. I mean, that to me is magic. I could do that every day, all day. Mm-hmm. And, there are these attachment points for people in those spaces, or it could be music or drumming or fire or whatever whatever, whatever floats your boat, you know, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. or sports, athletics. I was sort of an athletic idiot, but um, I have a son who's really into basketball, and I've gotten into basketball, and anybody who knows North American native communities, that is their sport, man, especially mm-hmm. in the Pacific North, Northwest, and mm-hmm. now that I know a little bit about basketball, it's so much fun, and mm-hmm. You know, that's, it, it just creates these gatherings where you're 90% just ripping it up, drinking beer, watching basketball. And then that other 10%, you actually get stuff done mm-hmm. in ways you otherwise could never get done because the collections of people who were there were just, mm-hmm. wouldn't even get together who it was all about, you know, who's against this or for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, it's a great point. What's so, your, what are so, your three P's or
0: your four P's? So, so the project, so you learn better through doing projects than through textbooks. Peers, which is you learn better when you're teaching each other rather than being lectured at. Passion, which is just what you talked about, when you're passionately pursuing right. something, you learn a lot of things as a byproduct of it. And then um and play. Um playfulness brings out creativity, whereas fear, anxiety, and sort of financial returns uh can motivate you to do stuff, but it doesn't really isn't really great for motivating people to be creative. And 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 with artificial intelligence and robots and all this other stuff, uh creativity is gonna be coming increasingly an important part of uh, what humans need to do. But also when you are trying to break these loops um, that are just kind of linear thinking, I think creativity is a really important way to, for instance, get people to start thinking in systems and things like that. But, yeah. but, but to your point about just doing it too, I mean, I think this is, this comes from the Media Lab too, it's a it's a word called constructionism, which is the idea of, you know, learning through construction rather than instruction and sort of learning through doing. And I think that's a really key part of the lab. That's sort of part of the projects piece, but because there's, you, you can sit around and explain to people what it's like, uh, but to actually go out and, you know, go s- spend time with people. and And again, I think even when you're um, sitting around a campfire eating you're starting you see the little sensibilities how they how they might clean up after themselves or how they might treat the food or how they how they how they think about and walk around uh, forests differently and I think those things you know really uh, you can't they're not textbook things it's kind of I, I, and sports is similar like you could sit there and read all you want about skiing and become a professional skier through books but going out on the slopes and falling is the only way you're really going to learn how to ski, you know? And I think that, I I think that, you know, our mind is not just in our head. It's, it's our body. It's, 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 and even in our head, you've got the conscious part, which is a part that sort of rationalizes everything and makes you think that everything was on purpose and plan. But actually all the stuff that you do is emotional, it's physical, it's intuitive. And so, so i think the way you train that um is through experience and not through this sort of cerebral uh uh abstract stuff uh only i mean i think it helps to have yeah. theory and hypotheses and that's what makes us human and 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 allows us to build on top of the work of everybody else but i think that a lot of times we end up just being uh, uh theoretical and and and, and I, I can't remember who said this I might've been Yogi Berra, but it was in, 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 in theory, practice and theory are the same. <laughs> but, um, so we're, we should probably wrap up pretty soon, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to this new endeavor that you're going to be uh, starting pretty soon to sort of do more and more of this uh, work with indigenous people. And, uh, and I'd be, I'd be, uh, uh, curious i mean are you going to be primarily focused in the us and then on on um the native americans or are you is this going to be a global effort from the beginning
1: it's going to be a global effort from the beginning and and and, and really trying to um trying to grow a a a global set of of partnerships that that fairly rapidly and persistently become a you know, a set of kind of clannish become a lineage, become a, a cohesive body that's interacting consistently, and in, and 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 really invest in those interactions, in the fun, mm-hmm. in the in, in doing things together, um, and learning and sharing. I mean that, and 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 there's no way around that, and that's the beauty of trusting this space where people mm-hmm. where where people are truly living where the systems that they're in are the systems that they have agency. all that stuff together. It's all that stuff is there's no, you can't separate it out. You mm-hmm. can't, mm-hmm. you know, have the meeting where you have no fun and that it's, and, and, and that's what drives a lot of people crazy. You know, you want to get something done in 15 minutes, you're not going to work, Yeah, you know, and, 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 and you never know how long it's going to take. It's always going to take a little bit longer than you think. But, um, but what you achieve is often way beyond Mm -hmm. um, what you would argue is possible.
0: Cool. Well, Christopher, I I guess I first saw you dancing around a campfire and then I saw you with a suit on, I think, at MIT. I look forward to seeing what you're gonna be doing the next time I see you, hopefully soon.
1: Yeah, I know. And I'd love to get out to some of these places together and for you to bring some of that Media Lab energy into the wilds of British Columbia or some far flung Pacific
0: Island. Actually, that's, that's what we should do next. We should, we should meet somewhere in the wild. Yep.
1: I'd love to anytime.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Christopher.
1: Yeah. Take care.
0: Okay.